All right. A quick summary where we've been uh, and, and what the book of James, in my mind, is, um, is about. And then we'll talk about worldliness and wealth. As always, uh, bring your comments forward. Uh, David will have a mic in the back. I'll have a mic up here, um, and, we can, and we can talk through some things. Uh, three things to keep in mind today and every time we get together about James. James is very strongly an imperative book. Lots of you do this, you don't do that. Um, st- strong uh, tones of exhortation. About half or so of the, of the sentences in the book are geared towards that kind of language. The structure is a little loose. Uh, at least the way that I read it, where it kind of bounce around, kind of like the book of Proverbs, bounces around from topic to topic. Uh, there's going to be some references by James to a couple of Proverbs we're going to see uh, this morning. And then the abundant use of metaphors and illustrations, which for us as humans is very appealing. We like word pictures, we like illustrations, we like examples because we can... Uh, we can think through things in a different way when we've got something in our head that we can that we can see, not just something that we can read. First couple of chapters, excuse me, first couple of sections we talked about were trials and wisdom. In summary, do not question your salvation or justification based on your circumstances. Just because things are stressful doesn't mean things are bad between you and God. In fact, the trials and the stress are there often to refine, to mature, to complete. Uh, Then secondly, we we talked last week about wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowing what the Bible says in the book of James or in the book of Galatians. Wisdom is about skillful living, especially in relation to other people. Are you a wise person? You could show me by how you treat and deal with other people. Uh, is the uh, kind of the summary in the back half of James chapter 3. Do you want this wisdom? You ask God without doubting and without being double-minded. And then there's a contrast that's a good segue to what we're talking about today. There's a segue, there's a section in the in this last half of chapter 3 that contrasts the natural man and the things that happen with him. He is jealous. He is selfish. He fights. And the result of his actions are evil practices and disorder. And the spiritual man, who is wise in a godly context, not just a earthly wisdom context. He is peaceable. He's impartial. He's pure. And as a result, he does things uh, in a righteous way. Thus concludes the, uh, the, the, the summary. And I feel like it was worth going through the back half of chapter 3 because it's a good segue to chapter 4. I'd like to read chapter 4 in its entirety as we start. So let's, uh, let's do that. We're going to cover James chapter 4 first. And then we're going to cover a couple of sections in chapter 1 and chapter 5. James chapter 4 verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? <coughs> Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will also do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. <coughs> okay, I'm going to go through um, uh, verse first five verses and then through verse 12 and then through verse 17. So, if you've got something to say around verse 5, if you can uh, raise your hand and then we'll talk again uh, amongst ourselves at verse 12 and then again at verse, verse 17. The first part of the book, James does not ask, why are you, what are you fighting about? And let's see if we can decide who's right or who's wrong. Um, James is saying, look, let's figure out why you're fighting in the first place. This is not about let's choose sides. Let's decide why are you fighting at all? What are these quarrels about? And these quarrels, these conflicts, these words are, are strong words in Greek. Um, I don't know why I'm choosing uh, to talk about Greek uh, every time, but there's uh, a couple of Greek words every time that will be on the, uh, the, on the quiz at the end. There's uh, military words here, military campaigns, military conflicts. So this is a serious, a serious kind of word. James doesn't say the source of your quarrels is because someone is right and someone is wrong. Um, what does James say? The source of your war against your members. Why do you struggle? Because of the things uh, that you want. We want something, uh, therefore we fight and we quarrel. Verse 2, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Is James saying that Christians were killing people? Um, is it uh, possible that Christians can kill people because of the things that they want? <coughs> sure it is. It's happened in the past. Um, hasn't it? In, in the, for us anyway, relative to now, it's happened in a, a bit of a distant past. Conflict has arose, and we, we now, when we teach it, sometimes we call it the crusades, where religious 
uh, people in the name of Jesus, uh, maybe not um, uh, in the right Christian relationship with God, but let's, let's say in the, in, for the sense of argument, the people who use the name of Jesus uh, to go after and attack those living in, in, Jerusalem, in, in Jerusalem and in the holy lands to them to try and conquer uh, things. There were uh, northern crusades in the northern parts of Europe and in Scandinavia in the 1100s, 1200s uh, AD. There were indigenous populations of pagan people who were forced into baptism and forced into military conquest in the name of Jesus. There was conflict because of uh, people using uh, Jesus and using in the Christian name. Even in the 16th, 17th century, battles between uh, Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians. Our, uh, the, the history of, of Jesus' name, the Christian name being used uh, in conflict, is, is, has a lot, uh, lot that, that's there that is not to be desired. Um, and certainly should be, certainly should be rejected um, when, when brought before us as a problem. I agree, it's a problem, and it shouldn't have been that way. And James is saying, even with extreme language right here, how can it get that way? How can it get that way? Christians can have conflict with each other, um, in, uh, and we see the source as our pleasures, verses 1 and verse 2, we know even in the New Testament times, there were, there were conflicts among people who were following Jesus. When Jesus was alive, there was a moment in, uh, I wrote it down because I knew I'd forget, Mark chapter 9 and, and Luke chapter 9, where there are people who are arguing as who's the best follower of Jesus, therefore who's going to have the right place or the, or the, the top place in the kingdom um, 1 Corinthians is ripe with divisions and conflicts. Um, there were a couple of ladies in the Philippian church who were at odds with each other in Philippians chapter 4. There are uh, different times when there are quarrels and, and conflicts amongst Christians. Uh, and, and James concludes that uh, it can become extreme, even uh, even to the point of murder, verse 2, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Verse, uh, verses 3 and 4, there's this comment about asking um, that appears on its surface, if you don't read it completely, to go against some of the things that Jesus would say. Jesus says, and, and I think in, instead, instead of going against what Jesus says, I read it as, sort of commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. That's how I, how I read it. Je Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Paul says, do not worry for everything you ask will be given to you. In Philippians chapter 4, and I hear James saying, yeah, you heard that. You heard that right from Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. However, um, sometimes you ask and you do not receive. Verse 3, Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. The premise is that when we pray, we can expect God to answer. That's the premise of the, of the section. However, in a mind of worldliness, um, whether it be selfishness, after our own desires, our motives can be wrong 
So if we're going to ask God for something, we better be on his side. Very strong language used in uh, verse 4. You adulteresses. Think back to the book of Galatians. Paul talked to the Christians and said, you fools. And I mentioned, you know, if, if uh, Leland or David were to get up and introduce a sermon and the, and the slide says, you know, dear fools, okay, at least I would have my attention. Like, okay, why are you calling me a fool? And in this case, it's not using the word fool, but let's imagine David or Leland getting up and saying, now listen to me, adulteresses. Very powerful language, even in a Greek, uh, in a Greek pagan context. But certainly in a, in a Christian context, you're telling me that I'm cheating. Uh, and James says, yeah, if the world likes you, you're in trouble. Verse 4, the friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Did you not know that? Um, if the world likes you, you're, you're in trouble. Um, so in summary... <coughs> The reason why Christians have quarrels and conflicts is because they allow their pleasures, their, their desires to dominate their lives and dominate their, their actions. Um, instead, we should promote some sort of, of unity and humility um, in, in our lives. And there's, there's applications that we're going to talk about. There's sort of, to me, the problem is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and the application of it. Is in, chap is in chapter 4, verse 6 through, through 17. A uh, couple of real quick comments about chapter 4, verse 5, because it confused me a little bit. Um, I welcome any comments on it. Um, but there's, if you look at verse 5, do you not think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. It looks like a quote of the Old Testament, but this, this phrase here, this sentence in verse 5, is not in the Old Testament. Uh, anywhere, although it looks like James is is quoting the Old Testament, so there's a bit of a problem here, uh, potentially, if James is quoting something that's not there. Um, here's how I, here's how I'm, I think about it, and I certainly welcome any comments or or edits to what I'm about to say. There's other language like this. Jesus uses this similar language in Matthew chapter two, verse twenty-three, and in John. Chapter 7, verse 38, as kind of summary themes about the scripture, uh, not necessarily direct quotes. You know, just like the Old Testament teaches us to have faith in, in God's plans for our lives, like he told Abraham to have faith that he would have a son. Now, God doesn't directly say that anywhere, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm summarizing a theme in a section of the book of Genesis. Um, I feel like that's what James is, is doing here. Uh, summarizing a, a theme, and even then, I, I'm a little confused as to what that theme might be, so I've offered a couple of options. Um, God desires his spirit to guide believers, which makes sense in the context. We are guided by our own pleasures, so, God is, you know, so James is saying, look, replace your own pleasures as a guide and replace it with God's spirit uh, as the guide, or that our nature... Uh, kind of desires worldly pleasures and kind of rounds out the, the problem. Whatever the case, I feel like it fits the, fits the theme here. As James is saying, look, I've heard and I know that there is fightings and conflicts among you. 
Let's not spend time trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. Let's talk about why there's fighting in the first place. There's fighting in the first place because of your mindset. You are focused on what you want, even to the point of it producing quarreling and adulterous behavior. You are now a friend of the world and not a friend to God. Okay, problem statement to find any comments or questions up through chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we'll talk about what to do about it uh, with the rest of this section. Nothing? Oh, thanks, Mitch. I was going to say, Bruce is in here, so. So the, the comment you made about, you know, are these Christians going around killing each other? I mean, I think what James is doing is he's pointing out the inevitable conclusion if they don't address the source, sure. right? So as human beings, our tendency is to build and build and build on these things until they hit that inevitable result. And he's trying to, to catch it before by using an extreme example. All right, good, good point. James chapter 1 even has that illustration. Sin uh, is likened to a... A developing child when it gives sin is given birth and it brings forth a uh, death. Good, good comment, Mitch. All right. So what? Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. Just a real quick statement. You think about there in verse five when you talk. You have this idea where it says, "Okay, the scriptures' purpose is linked to this idea of God's fervent desire." Yeah to dwell in us. Mm-hmm. And you think about that is that is a contrast to what is being described and rebuked in verses 1 through 4. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you think of being called out of the world you know, to, into Christ, the very, the, the very purpose of, you know, the gospel call, you know, God's call to us through his son is to have a relationship with us. Mm-hmm. And, but that relationship is not possible and it's not sustainable if our mindset is causing us to be more in line with worldliness. Yeah, well, well said. And I think that's, that's why he uses the illustration of like friendship in verse 4. It's like, look, think about friendship. There's certain people that you will be friends with, and if you're friends with those people, that's almost by default you're not friends with somebody else. Um, you can't have a friendship in this case with God and the world because they are opposed to one another. Um, good deal, good deal. All right, yes, David. So there's, a <clears throat> there's something called the health and wealth gospel that's taught and believed by a lot of people that uh, whatever you ask for, you'll receive if you have enough faith or the right kind of faith. And if you, if you ask God for it and you don't receive it, then apparently you didn't have enough faith. Uh, there's a passage where Jesus says, if you had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you could move mountains. But ultimately, it's not the faith that moves the mountain, it's God. Right. And it has to be God's will that the mountain move. And so it just makes sense when we, when we pray and we have selfish motives that uh, it's not God's will. It's not a part of his purpose for you to have that brand new pickup truck or whatever you're praying for. Sure, yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about God's will also at the end of this chapter. 
uh, as well um, about the things that we that we ask for. Um, let's talk about a couple of the applications. So, being humble. Um, verse uh, six, he gives greater grace. Greater grace than than what? Um, to, to me, is <coughs> willing to take humble humans and give them grace, give them the things that they do not deserve, knowing that they will use it for the right things. If you look at verse 3, the worldly-minded person will be given things and spend it on their pleasures. God is able to give because he's opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. There's blessings giving to a, to a humble person because God knows the output uh, of that blessing will be given to a humble person who will use it the right way. There's good contrast to me in verses seven and eight. Very, um, very catchy phrases here. We've we've seen time and time and time and time again. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God. I want to har- harken uh, your minds to verse eight, where it says, "Cleanse your hands." Cleanse your hands. Okay, good uh, Bible students. Why would, why would James use this phrase to these people? Why would he, he use the word cleanse your hands uh, to them? What would that hearken in their minds? Sure. So there's a Jewish culture that a lot of these people were tied to that had a a former life where the priests would dip their hands into the laver at the temple or the tabernacle. Um, uh, cleansing of the hands was important. Don't miss the imagery because they certainly wouldn't have missed uh, the imagery. Um, you think about, um, just think for a moment about um, being outside in the dirt and the mulch or something and you come inside and you're, and you're washing your hands. Um, and the feeling that you have after that of cleanliness uh, in your hands, um, feel it, uh, I think is, uh, is James's point. Cleanse your hands. Why your hands? Because they represent what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do, right? So there's a, there's a sense in which cleansing of your hands, the idea of repentance uh, I think is is a little bit in in this section here too. Um, you have a spiritual mindset, not a worldly one. You are humble and you're purified in your hearts. Um, verses uh, eight, uh, nine, and ten. And then the, and then lastly, uh, in verses eleven and twelve, something else that you do is you do not speak against uh, each other. And we'll talk about that in just a second because I'm going to transition to thoughts. I'm going to let Jonathan. Uh, Say what he's got first. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the reasons he's using that the cleanse your hands um, statement is because of its connection to Psalm 24 where um, it's who can be in the presence of God, who can have this true relationship with God, who mm-hmm. can, in this case, it puts it, ascend the hill of the Lord, who can stand in the presence of God. Well, that's what James is talking about. And it says he who has clean hands, but he connects it with a pure heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not acting with falsehood or deceitfully, but, uh, yeah, I think those things go hand in hand. So I think James is drawing on Psalm 24 and their remembrance of yeah, that. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Jonathan, the pure in heart, the humble in heart, and go back to the first of this chapter. If you're spending your time 
thinking about yourself, up to the point of quarreling with each other and conflict with each other, God does not have a place in that relationship. Well, that's how the world acts. Uh, don't, don't act uh, in that way. God is looking for a, a humble person who's willing to be purified and have a cleansed heart. That person also, verses 11 and 12, does not spend his time judging and speaking against uh, others. You know, you can get to the point, you know, sometimes, I don't know how y'all uh, feel about this, but sometimes I feel like this. Sometimes when Leland or, or David or somebody's preaching and they're 15, 18 minutes in, it's like, nope, that doesn't apply to me. And then they get to the next point, and like, oh, I wish he would have stopped there because now it applies to me, right? I think there's, there's a sense maybe, this is how I read it. Anyway, you can certainly read it differently. You can read through verses 1 through 10. I'm like, but that's not me. Um, that's somebody else. Well, let's talk about how you talk about somebody else. Do not speak against one another. Verse 11, why? Because he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. James's argument, again, the way that I'm, that I'm reading it goes something like this. It's wrong to speak against a brother or a sister because... It's judging them and judging them is God's business and not our business. When we judge them, we play God because we're judging his word. God alone is the lawgiver, so God has to be the judge. Instead of being judges, we should be lawyers, helping to explain the law, understand it in relationship to one another, not convicting people um, because of it. Are we to avoid calling out sin altogether? Certainly not. That would be an inconsistent way of interpreting this passage versus other passages. You know, Matthew 18, we even saw one in Galatians chapter 6, identifying sin and, and, and catching someone in a trespass and handling that. Um, he's not forbidding us from confronting sin. He's preventing us from from judging in an arrogant way, um, similar to the way that Jesus may even uh, say something like that in, in, in Matthew chapter in Matthew chapter seven. So a couple of applications uh, there, and then a kind of a elongated um, uh, application at the end of chapter four. And then I'll get your comments here. Um, this one applies especially this time of year because we're all about to make. New Year's resolutions that we're not going to keep. I talked, uh, I spent a lot of my week this week um, helping to prepare uh, some members of my company with talking about the next two years of a plan for our business. And they're going to meet with the board of directors and present, you know, budgets and resources and things we need because we were planning for the future. Spent a lot of my time thinking about that. We spent a lot of time talking about and planning for the future. You know, Brian makes a career out of helping people plan for the future. Is this all uh, a problem? Is this all uh, a sin uh, that, uh, that we should not be doing? Uh, I feel like James is, is pretty clear. Uh, let's walk through it a little bit and then solicit your, solicit your comments. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1 is a good tie here. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. 
If you look at verse 16, the mindset that he's after, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Again, tied to the ideas of humility we've talked about in the middle of the chapter, when it comes to the future, do not boast about what it will be. Don't fall to the sin of assumption. Um, Is it wrong to plan outright? Is it wrong to say, verse 13, tomorrow we're going to go somewhere, you know, we're going to spend a year somewhere, we're going to engage and make a profit? No, certainly not. Uh, there's, there's other applications where we are, we are taught to, <coughs> to store up, we are taught to provide for our families, and just naturally in culture, we're going to have to think about the future and plan. Worldliness plans without God in the picture. Um, the boastful, arrogant planner assumes that he is the master of his fate and the captain of his, of his soul. He assumes control of his destiny. So it's not what will be, will be. It's not like I got no control, I can do nothing. It's not what I will, will be. Um, that's what he's also fighting against. It is what God wills um, will be. I'd like, to, if you can, put a bookmark real quick in uh, James 4. I want to flip over to Psalm 39 and read this. I feel like it's a really good, a really good tie, Psalm 39. And it's important to see because this theme of uh, avoiding the sin of assumption is, is throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament and in the and in the New Testament. Psalm 39, I'm going to read first uh, six verses. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned and I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. And behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Um, I like this section a lot. How are we like a vapor in James uh, chapter 4? A couple of ways, I think. James chapter 4, in the connection to James uh, Psalm 39, our life is quick. It is a handbreadth at best. This is how long your life is at best. Uh, a handbreadth life. And then a second way we are like a vapor, because our life is very, very fragile. Um, we are strong, we exercise, we financially plan, we surround ourselves with family, we surround ourselves with financial stability, we live in a very protected country, and we could die before the day is out. Um, who are you in that context? Who are you to boast about what will happen Tomorrow, Therefore, 
plan, sure. But when you plan, if the Lord wills, should be on our mouths, verse uh, 15. And the last verse, uh, verse 17, ties our knowledge of what we will do and what we should do with our actions. Um, We have a lot of access to what to be doing today. If we are overlooking what we're supposed to be doing today, that's wrong. It is easy to think about the future and plan for the future. But when you're thinking about the future, be mindful that it needs to include if the Lord wills. And at the same time, if you're thinking about the future, don't forget about right now. To you who knows present tense, the right thing to do and doesn't do it, that's a problem. It's not about waiting. It's not about planning. There's knowledge that you have right now of things that you need to do. Go and do those things. If you don't, it is sinful. All right. I got it. I actually wanted to go back just a little bit. Um, You were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount does such a good job of pointing out is the intricate connection between our relationship with our brother and our relationship with God. You know, to the point that he says, if you have a quarrel with your brother, leave your alms at the altar and go resolve that quarrel. Yeah. And I see some of those same connections here when he mm-hmm. points out what's the way to draw closer to God. You know, yeah. one of the ways to draw closer to God yeah. is to avoid these quarrels, not to judge your brother. And you have to draw closer to one another in order to draw closer to God because yeah. those two things are incompatible. And if you are fighting and quarreling and hating you will never be able to draw closer to God. Well well said. Yeah, if there's a conflict between brother or sister in this assembly, Jesus would say, James would say, if we're about to take the Lord's Supper, put that down, walk over, and resolve that um, so that this act of worship um, can can be seen as right before God. You can't be right before God if you're in conflict, if you're in in disunity uh, with, with brothers. Yeah, I think... James and his brother Jesus are saying very similar things. Thank you, Brian. Uh, it reminds me of Jonah, right? This whole section reminds me of Jonah, especially that last verse, verse 17. Mm. Uh, you know, you think about the sin of Jonah. That first part of the sin was just not wanting to do what God, you know, the yeah. right thing that God wanted yeah. him to do. And Good. so he ran. But then also you think later about Jonah and, you know, really the problem wasn't that he didn't want to do what God wanted to do. It's that Jonah desired for the Assyrians to be punished. He wanted them to yeah. be destroyed, right? So this whole chapter, I think, is really honing in on that, that, those first few verses where it says you're, you're the source of the problem mm-hmm. is your desires. It's your pleasures. Yeah. And that's what causes a problem when you try to judge your brethren. It's because you're not using the law. You're inserting right. your own opinion into the law. Right. You're not judging correctly because your pleasures keep coming up. You're not, uh, you know, at the end of the day saying, what does the Lord want me to do and what does the Lord desire? Mm-hmm. You're just doing whatever you want and hoping the Lord will, will go along. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Well said. Who's got it? Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say, um, when you when you quarrel or you judge uh, a brother or a sister, it can run them away from the church. It can cause those, their soul to be lost forever. 
uh, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to different people who have left the church because of what somebody said or what somebody has done to them. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And then on the on the future part, that reminds me of where the man was building the barns for the future, and he had all this riches and everything. Mm-hmm. And God said, "You fool! Your soul is required tonight." Yep. So those are. Oh, excellent! Words. Excellent. Anybody else in this chapter? <clears throat> it's a loosely tied. I think it's in. It's an important um, uh, section as well. And in, in, uh, when it talks about worldliness, it's easy to tie how we see our uh, wealth and see our money. Um, so I'm going to touch very briefly on a couple of sections. First, flip over to James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and then we'll turn back and read James 1, 5, verses 1 through 6. James 1, verse 9, But the brother of a humble circumstance is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its, excuse me, and its flower falls off, and beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Verse Uh, Excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which come upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have been moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure and you fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Um, First, um, when it comes to being rich, what was the Jewish uh, mindset? Uh, in summary, if you were wealthy, what did that mean? You were good. You were pious. You were devoted to God. If you were poor, it is because God was punishing you. Um, so if you think about this Jewish mindset, um, it's when Jesus and his brother James teach about things like this that flips that on its head. Flip that on its head. You know, the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 kind of flips that on its head and would have been shocking to them. This would have been shocking to them. What's, what's his point? Whatever your position, here is your focus. If you are poor, focus on your position in Jesus because it is the one that matters. If you are rich, recognize that you are to be humbled because it will all be gone and you would still maybe be left a sinner. Um, True riches are not earthly riches, um, but, but, but heavenly ones. Um, look at verse, chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verses uh, uh, 1 through 6. <laughs> One of the reasons we have to have a, the right mindset around our money, around our things, is because that our things and our wealth are transitory. They are not fixed they move through the world, and we just happen to be in the way of them uh, in some cases. Um, 
there are multiple places in the Bible where blessings and woes are used in, in terms of wealth. Um, and I think this particular um, is a section that we should pay attention to. Is it, is it okay to have money? Is it okay to have wealth? Well, yeah, the uh, middle-class American Christian capitalist congregation would say amen to that, right? Because we all have it. Um, so we certainly can't say it's wrong to have it because we certainly all do have it um, in this country and in this state um, and, and, in this, and in this time. Recognize that if we do have it, recognize how we should treat it. First, be mindful that some of that, if we're not careful, may already currently be rotting and rusting away. Your gold has already rusted. How, James, can my riches, can my stuff uh, rust or be eaten by moths while I have it? How can that happen for us? Um, how does something rust or get moth-eaten? If it sits still, um, if it's not being used as intended, um, if instead we are fattening our hearts, verse 5, we are fattening for a certain day of slaughter. <clears throat> to be rich without God gives temporary comfort, yes, but can be long-term uh, misery. And there's a couple of particular applications that may apply to less of us in chapters 5 verses 4 through 6 about people who have employees and not withholding from them. Certainly something that should apply if you're in that position and it's self-explanatory. But I, and, and to me, in summary, wealth is a good tool if it is a tool and not just a weight that we carry. You have wealth, Christian, if it's sitting, it's rusting. Um, so, be generous. If you're given things through your uh, humility in chapter 4, you know, God gives a greater grace to those who are humble. If you're given the opportunity to have wealth and given the opportunity to plan, be mindful that the results of that, the wealth that you carry, will rust while you hold it. The only way it doesn't rust and it doesn't get eaten by moths as if we do something with it. Um, okay? All right. We'll uh, stop there, and we'll talk about um, uh, relationships with other people um, next Sunday. Thank you.